Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations, a new show here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Katherine Schmidt, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is the spring running, the many different kinds of fish that are now migrating up coastal rivers from the ocean. These migratory fish are sometimes called sea run fish. Scientists refer to them as diadromous, which means they go back and forth between freshwaters and the sea. There are 12 species of these fish native to Maine, and all of them can be found in the Penobscot River and Bay, our focus for today's conversation. Our guests today are Oliver Cox of the Department of Marine Resources, Jeffrey Pierce, an alewife fisherman and executive director of alewife harvesters of Maine, and Tara Trinko-Lake, fisheries biologist with the National Marine Fisheries Service. I'd like to um, start the show by asking my guests to just introduce themselves and say a little bit more about their relationship to sea run fish. Thank you, Catherine. Um, my name is Jeffrey Pierce, as you mentioned, and I'm the executive director and founder of the Alewife Harvesters of Maine, which was done in 2007. I'm currently the uh, marine on the Marine Resource Committee for the uh, State House. I'm one of your representatives. Thanks. Good morning. I'm Oliver Cox with the Maine Department of Marine Resources, and I'm the director of the Division of Sea Run Fisheries and Habitat. I've been with the department since 2008, and I started my work on the Penobscot with the Lanx Salmon. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Catherine. My name is Tara Trinko-Lake. I'm a fisheries biologist from NOAA Fisheries. I work in Orono, Maine, and I work on protected species, especially sea run fish, like Atlantic salmon and Atlantic sturgeon, and we also work on species of concern, like alewives and blueback herring. Okay, thank you. So my first question is, um, I mentioned there's 12 species of these fish, and um, are there sort of, is there a regular schedule of which fish arrive first, and sort of how they proceed through the seasons in Maine rivers? Well, it's interesting. Um, I talk a lot about uh, smelt, alewives, blueback heron, and uh, American eel seem to be in the system all the same time. They're like right now, um, trying to get into fresh water to, uh, to spawn. And that's why they come up rivers to spawn. Absolutely, um, it's it's interesting. Uh, they they're uh, hatched or spawned in uh, our lakes. Um, they summer there, and then they head out and spend most of their life in uh, the sea, except for American eel, of course. Yeah, eels are a little different, right? They do the opposite. <laughs> yes, eels spawn in the sea, and they move into fresh water to grow. So some of them are all in the river together. Um, do some of them arrive later in the summer? Yeah, I typically think of uh, the smelts as arriving first, then uh, followed by Atlantic salmon uh, beginning in May, and uh, river herring running in May, blueback herring, and then American shad. Okay, 
What about striped bass is another one of these species? When do they start running? Yep, striped bass follow the river herring. So um, alewives are river herring and so are blueback herring. Um, and they seem to be a really big deal for some towns. Um, and Oliver, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about municipal harvesting rights and how sort of the alewife harvest works because I think we're one or one of only two states that where we can actually harvest alewives commercially. Is that correct? Yes. The uh, harvest rights are um, granted by the Commissioner of the Green Resources to, to towns. They can be exclusive rights um, or otherwise, uh, allowing the town to harvest um, river herring. The towns need to submit to the department annually a river herring harvest plan and they also need to maintain their rights annually. Uh, to maintain their rights they usually have a, a vote on a, on a local ordinance that would say we want to maintain exclusive rights. Um, often when their town has exclusive rights there will be no uh, recreational harvest upstream um, because of, with a town harvest plan there are some provisions for escapement to maintain the run as well as provisions for harvest. So a uh, standard uh, river herring plan might have three days of escapement, four days of harvest. But to add into what Oliver said, there's actually only 41 towns in the state of Maine that has municipal harvest rights. These go back that, to the early 1800s. Right now there's 21 towns that actually are allowed to harvest the rest are in conservation. So this species has been being protected and we found that uh, when they only had a one day uh, that they couldn't take uh, river herring, that it, it, didn't, it didn't work well, and then they went to two days. But the three days seems to be the trigger on most runs to allow for uh, a healthy, sustainable run, which maybe we could talk about later or now of uh, what, what caused uh, us to create this to sustainability um, through the harvest. Sure, well that's sort of like why, why is Maine a state where we can still harvest these fish? commercially? Well, along the Atlantic coast, Maine seems to be doing better than most other states for alewife and blueback herring, so it's in a unique situation where the runs are healthy enough and sustainable to actually harvest. Well, in the, and along with that, Mainers have had a good history of stewardship, and this is something we argued at the Atlantic states when the amendment uh, addendum 2 was going on that we've been taking us, we started doing scale samples before so we could tell the age and sex of fish and we had a, a good picture of uh, what that uh, age class and sex class looked like. We didn't have too many males, we didn't have too many females, we didn't have uh, you know, uh, too many young fish or too many old fish which would indicate problems in the run. So we were able to prove our sustainability point and every year actually we have to make sure through scale sampling programs that we meet our sustainability targets which means we have enough escapement and that, that has been really why Maine has been allowed to have us and of course we've done a tremendous amount of habitat restoration dam removals and there's a lot of interest for them in the municipal so we've kept it on a community-based management point which has really helped uh, because the towns are super involved in the 18 Haviston towns. Can you give some more examples of maybe how towns are involved in terms of stewardship? 
Oh, Gradimus God is a great one. Um, the, you know that the fish ladder they put in uh, or rebuilt was an uh, aging structure with, that wasn't effectively passing fish. Uh, the town, the tri count towns got together. There's three towns: uh, Newcastle, Noveborough, and Damascotta Mills. Got together, started doing fundraisers. They privately raised over a million dollars for this beautiful fish ladder. You've got to go see it if it's on your list of things to do. So, what's a fish ladder? Can you explain that? Yeah, f uh, fish ladders are uh, typically, uh, you know, engineered structures that allow fish to uh, ascend a barrier, such as a dam or an outlet structure. So, and they can take many forms. Some they can be uh, very simple, from aluminum steep pass structures to uh, you know engineered natural-looking reaches, uh, such as Fields Pond is a recent example of that. And so why do we need, why do we need these fishways? Well, they, they control the, w the water coming out of the ponds uh, in a manner that the fish can ascend them. So they control the velocity of the water, um, the depth of the water, uh, and allow for the fish to, to pass upstream. Yeah, if we think of where alewives spawn, they spawn in lakes. And if you think about lakes and ponds in Maine, most of those lakes and ponds have outlet dams. And so in order to get the fish to where they spawn, um, you either need to have a fishway or you need to do some type of restoration or removal work to remove the barriers. And like Jeff mentioned, Dermascata has done a great job with their fishway. And there are other examples of natural bypasses, like Oliver mentioned, on Sajunkadunk Stream and Brewer. Um, and also examples of towns removing their dams and restoring their LY fronds. And why do towns want to do that? Well, it's a part of their history. Um, you know, these sea-run fish have always been there, and sometimes there's been a lost connection. Maybe towns forget that they had the sea-run fish, and so this is sort of um, reconnecting the marine world with the freshwater world. And there's also the possibility of harvest in the future that the towns might be interested in. And also, there's a tourist benefit. I think um, the Benton Falls Alewife Festival has been a great draw for people. Um, and also, Dermascata sees a lot of tourists at their fishways in the spring. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, think about um, the barriers, you know, uh, the Sebastocook hasn't, uh, until uh, the uh, Halifax Dam went out, they hadn't seen an alewife in 189 years because of the Edwards Mill Dam. And so salmon, smelt, uh, alewives, and uh, blueback heron had been excluded from these waters. So when we see them going into the lakes, uh, the, the, these, these, uh, these service, then we see the, the fact that um, you know, the water quality improves and we have a lot more species, it's good for predation. Look at the eagles that are on the Kennebec. So when working on the Penobscot, just getting rid of the VZ Dam, can you imagine being a fish when you used to look at VZ Dam? How do I get over this? Well, that's why ladders are important. Because if you want to fix the leak on your roof, you get a ladder. If you want to get in, uh, I always tell, tell people, you have to uh, get the adults into the bedroom to have kids to go out to school. <laughs> So that's a, a good analogy to look at. Yep. Yeah, and Jeff brings up a really good point. Um, you know, alewives and blueback herring are sort of known as the fish that feeds all. And so in the springtime, when eagles and ospreys are nesting, these fish are bringing important nutrients and feeding, you know, birds. And like on the Sebastocook, there's an enormous number of eagles and ospreys that come to the river when the fish are running. 
And it's just a great opportunity to see birds and see the connections between the fish and the birds and also mink, otters, other fish. They're really just a prey source and nutrient source for all sorts of other parts of the ecosystem. It, it certainly is. Uh, river herring are certainly a big player in, in the ecosystem restoration. So when we're talking about river herring, it's a win-win on a lot of fronts. I mean, the ecosystem's going to benefit. Species outside of the river are going to benefit. Uh, the communities benefit with uh, the harvest. And, you know, the economy benefits as well because... Uh, river herring are, are a source of lobster bait, so, you know, coastal communities benefit by having a local source of bait that's uh, accessible. Um, it, it really is a win-win for everybody. Yeah, and, uh, and with the, Taylor brought up a really good point. When uh, these fish come in, they bring in vital nutrients from the sea, and they deposit them, but they're a great exporter of phosphorus. Webber Pond, prime example, has been under restoration now for 10 years. It's just up above Seven Mile Stream in Vassarboro. That lake always, when I was a kid, would turn green for months and because it, it turned over because of all the phosphorus. And where the phosphorus came from all the sewer syst uh, septic systems that used to run into the lakes. Well, we don't do that now, but these lakes, like China Lake, still, uh, still has these effects. Webber Pond hasn't turned over in two years and they've only had a very, one very small allergy bloom in the last three years. This is a tremendous success story, and the, the bass fishing and uh, trout fishing is incredible in there. And so it's really helped out uh, tourism for people to want to come fish the lakes because they're not dead, because they're not deprived of oxygen. So um, it's, it's really a good win for the state of Maine. So Oliver, you mentioned um, bait. So what are the the ill these fish used for by the towns? Well, when the towns are harvesting, they're going to be used for lobster bait. So they're supporting the lobster industry. Um, that's That would be the primary use. I've heard of a few uh, people thinking about exporting some of them for bait outside of the, the community, but predominantly they're used locally by our lobstermen. Do people eat them? Yes. They can, yes. So there are some good guys that, uh, that are good at smoking. Um, any, anyone knows Sam Chapman in Waldebro? He's got a really good smoked product. I would recommend that. And it goes good with beer. But um, <laughs> there's a, uh, a, guy, a couple guys in Canada that for the last 70 years have been sending L-wives to uh, Haiti for substance food. They sell them in 40-pound uh, white bags that are salted and smoked. So... There, are, there, are, there is a movement right now for some of the harvesters today to uh, send uh, a tractor trailer load of alewives uh, to Canada for this process to send the substance food for Haiti. It's a really good program, and uh, we, we've got a truck in the area that we're working on filling up to send. So I've been lucky to to have witnessed several alewife harvests, but I think for our listeners, they might really be interested in sort of how, what are some of the methods that are used? And so, Jeffrey, you are a harvester, correct? correct. As well as directing the alewife harvesters of Maine Association. And maybe you can share a little bit with us about the methods of how we actually collect these fish and what the harvest looks like. Boy, I'll try. There's a, there's a number of different methods, and it's really uh, interesting because out of the 18 runs, I think there's only two that do it the same way. It's really stream-specific because Every harvest site has its challenges. Uh, the Union River right up here, uh, they have a fish lift. It's an old salmon lift, and they lift the fish uh, uh, through uh, water flows in a pen, 
and it's very effective and it, it saves a lot of labor. Benton Falls has the same, uh, doesn't have that system. They have a fish lift, but the harvesters, they work. And they primarily use cast nets and uh, lobster crates. And then they have a chute because they have about a 60 foot incline to bring them fish up over. It's absolutely tremendous to watch. What's a cast net? Um, they usually, they're a radius net um, that you throw. Uh, they're called throw nets, cast nets. Um, and if you're really good with it, you can be very successful. It's like throw. It's like trying to throw a pizza, and make it spread out, and then there's weights on it. It sinks, and you pull a shake. Uh, some people call them a parachute net. So you can pull the string, it captures the fish, and then you release the string, and it puts them in a crate. Those guys. Uh, it takes seven or eight of those guys to work all day up at Benton Falls. I'm I'm lucky. Uh, I have a hoop net with a live box at the end of it so we don't have a string or anything to pull. So we wait until we have somebody who a lobsterman to come and we sell them absolutely the freshest bait there is. So here in the studio, we're right down the road from a harvestable run, which is in the Orland River. Can right. you say something about that run? Orland River is, uh, is, an, is an interesting run. Um, they have a pen, so it, uh, it has a slot in it. And so the fish, when the tide comes in, the fish go in through the slot. But when they leave, it's like a weir. It's set up sort of like one, but it's it's more of a pen with a weir mouth. So the fish come in when the tide leave. They actually have a concrete pad that was put in years ago. They have a conveyor, and they just push them into the conveyor. It's actually very uh, user-friendly. Um, Dermot Scotter has uh, big dippers, um, so go to the run right now and see it, um, you know, but check your weather. But they have these big metal dippers that were built at BIW in 1911, and they lower them down, and then they pick them up, and there's a little trough that they all shovel them into with some water, and it goes down, and dump. It's, it's pretty cool. you, you got to see it. Um, so, Oliver, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about what, in terms of state-level management and what the department what the relationship is to these runs? Yeah, it's certainly. So we mentioned the harvest plans earlier. And back in April, all the towns submitted their harvest plans for approval. So uh, most of those plans go to Claire Enterline, who, who reviews them and submits them to the commissioner for approval. And all those plans take into consideration um, the sustainability of the run, um, and as well as some of the site-specific conditions. So Jeff mentioned Ellsworth has a lift and the Sebastocook. So um, some of those different harvest practices allow for different types of escapement, and so there's some variation in the plans. So, But the state, we're looking at uh, the runs from the harvestable uh, sustainability harvest criteria. So and the things that we're really interested in is the abundance of fish. So we expect like 235 river herring back per surface acre. Um, so that's our benchmark. How is how's the run compare? Um, you know, we the runs can't have any outside stocking, so they have to be self-sustaining. Um, we're looking at the number of maiden spawners, first-time spawners to re repeat spawners. So, um, you know, there's several runs right now that are just being counted, um, and we're evaluating the sustainability of those runs in hopes of opening them, opening them in future years. So what do the counts look like? I'm wondering sort of when we talk about abundance, especially in the Penobscot, you know, can we say something about historical abundance or 
you know, what sort of what's the run size been in the last few years? Obviously, they're still coming in now, so we don't know for this year, but. Yeah, the, I think the Penobscot was really a, a pleasant surprise in 2014, so some of the first some of the first uh, um, stocking happened in 2010, I believe, and uh, we were seeing the returns from that effort. So these are fish that were transferred from the Kennebec and from the Union and, and put into some uh, Pushaw Lake and uh, Chimo Pond, Davis Pond. So this year we're getting returns back from uh, the second year of stocking as well. So we were pleasantly surprised. A quarter million fish came back in 2014. Um, as well as uh, you know, a nice uh, abundance of American shad were counted at the Milford Lift too. So it was over 800 shad. Um, I think since 1978 at the VZ Fishway, we had counted 16 shad. So to put that in perspective, we were quite surprised. We knew the Fishway was a barrier to shad, but we never expected to be passing over eight, 800. What's um, a shad? American shad. So they're they're um, they're like lives on steroids. They're bigger. Um, they run later in June, um, but similar life histories. You'll, you'll like a shad, too. They actually fillet up, and uh, they're really good eating. And you can catch them on what they call a shad dad. It's very, very small. And if you've got a young kid and uh, you want to get him hooked on fishing, give him a shad dad. Um, where I'm from, Carvacy Stream, the mouth of Carvacy Stream, is a great time. It's a great fish to fight, and it might be catch and release now, but... It's something really good to get the kids hooked on. They're very pretty fish. So shad, are they in the river at the same time as the elves, or do they? They come a little later, but not much. I mean, a lot of these species we've been talking about, we haven't really touched on Atlantic salmon, but these species are all in the river at the same time. So it's a, you know, this time of year is a, is a great time to be around your rivers and see how clean they've become. Blackman streams are doing a, a logging colony um, complex and everybody's in period dress and they've got the log cabin so I just wanted to plug Blackman Stream because it's they hadn't seen an wife in 212 years and that's part of the success from the, the, the VZ dams and the other dams that have come out of that area so it's really a, a good thing to see and uh, you can find it online. Yeah, we're really just in the beginning of the success story in the Penobscot. As Oliver said, there were a quarter million river herring that came through last year, but historically there were 15 to 20 million river herring. So we can just imagine how many we can expect to see in the future. It's hard to imagine that many yeah. fish. Well, and, and half of those fish did go up Blackman Stream, so um, you know they weren't counted at the Milford facility, so they were counted uh, in Blackman Stream. And I mean, that's, that's impressive. So why are we putting all this effort up on uh, on alewives and river heron. So there's a lot of data that suggests that the historic cod spawning, silver hake, and haddock populations were at the end of these rivers. So when the juveniles came out, because they are small and yummy, and the alewives are the building block of the food pyramid. So you can, can you explain that a little bit? So the, about the, them being the, yummy? Well, so <laughs> about, about the juveniles, right? So the adults come up, they come up in the spring, and they go into lakes, and they spawn. And then do the adults, do they, they hang around for the summer? Or do they leave right away? They, they leave within uh, two weeks. Okay. I mean, so they, they take off. So the juveniles stay in the lakes. And 
Oliver or Tara might know this number better than me, but each female, a big female, is capable of spawning about 200,000 eggs. So think of millions, like uh, some of these bigger ponds, like Gardner's Pond in East Machaya, so what comes out of the uh, Union River. Millions and millions of these little three and four inch fish come out. And so they were the feed for the cod, for the silver hake, for the haddocks, or the inshore spawning areas. And there's a lot of evidence to prove this. And as we closed off these barriers, we've eventually the cod and the silver hake and the haddock left. So we don't have any inshore stocks now. Where they've gone, it's up. It's up. there's a lot of debate. That's why uh, the uh, the St. Croix is such an important issue. They figure there's going to be a, at that if that keeps improving, um, which has just been recently opened. Some people know of the issue. It's a touchy subject in some to some people, but if we get that back, think of the feed for these. Uh, you know. For all these uh, offshore uh, ground fish, I mean, that, there's a di direct correlation with the crash of our ground fish and the crash of our livestock. Um, you know, we, how do I put it? Um, so you don't go to a restaurant that doesn't have food. Neither do the cod, neither did the silver hake or the haddock. So if we're going to rebuild our ground fishery, we need to rebuild these stocks because our lives are like grass. They're meant to be mowed, and if you take care of them, you'll always have a great green lawn, you know, and, and you'll always have a great green, a great fishery uh, for ground fish and lobster and everything else. I mean, everything eats them. It, the, the freshwater aspect is only half the story. I mean, when we're restoring river herring to a freshwater pond and stuff, we, we're actually restoring river herring to the Gulf of Maine. And, I mean, as Jeff said, they're, they're like popcorn to these... Uh, to these uh, predator fish, they they just snack on them and eat them. It's a great source of food. So the juveniles start migrating out um, of some systems as early as July, but up August, September, and in, into the fall. And often it's flow dependent. That's exactly right. And NOAA Fisheries has partnered with the Department of Marine Resources on their inshore trawl to look for river herring, alewife, and blueback herring in the stomachs of ground fish. So we're hoping as the fish are restored to more rivers in Maine, we're going to see more fish in the stomachs, and we can make those ties to ground fish stocks, and hopefully we'll see more ground fish in the Gulf of Maine as well. Oliver, can you say something about what the inshore trawl is? So I'm, I'm used to a lot of this jargon working for Sea Grant and sort of being in the fisheries world, but not all of our listeners may know what some of these things are. Can you just explain Yeah, it, it's a, a systematic survey that the department does to... Um, look for uh, fish species so it's done twice a year in the spring and the fall and it, uh, it's a long-term data set it's for monitoring purposes but as part of that effort you know Tara's right Noah did um, put together a project to look at the stomach contents of some of these ground fish and start connecting um, you know our river herring restoration efforts in freshwater to the Gulf of Maine and start building that response. Do we have any results from that yet Tara? We have some results. Um, right now there are very few ground fish in the Gulf of Maine, so it's hard to make any um, determinations. And the few stomachs they found have a few river herring in them, so it's, it's pretty light right now. Um, so we're hoping that as stocks of alewives increase, um, we'll see more and we can do more sampling. But um, right now there aren't a lot of ground fish to find food in. 
So we're talking sea-run fish here with Jeffrey Pierce of Alewife Harvesters of Maine, Oliver Cox from the Department of Marine Resources, and Tara Lake from the National Marine Fisheries Service. And we've spent a lot of time today talking about alewives, which are, um, along with blueback herring, are called river herring. But there's, as I mentioned, 12 species of these fish. So what are some other um, species of these sea-run or migratory or diadromous fish that are in the Penobscot and other coastal rivers in Maine right now? I think a lot of the why we've spent so much time on alewives and blueback heron, um, as they're collectively known as ri river heron, is because um, salmon, um, not so much, but the striped bass love them. They're yum. I like. I, I keep referring to the yummy. I mean, think of all the other marine animals that eat them. I mean, they're they're absolutely like all of us as popcorn. So uh, we have trouble with striped bass uh, in our rivers and. Uh, last year everyone uh, was saying well uh, you know there's no striped bass around but we find striped bass pretty regular and we're we're quite away from the sea um, in our nets now um, and th their mouths are jammed full of alewives um, so they definitely follow uh, the alewives so the more we increase the alewife and blueback population the more of these other species we uh, we help uh, increase but with passage and cleaning the streams and good stewardship, we're finding that we're opening habitat to the smelt, which is very, which is an important species on its own. So I, I, I would say with, where there's a lot of interest on alewives and blueback heron, that helps all the species because everything there's a number of runs when they work on alewife restoration. It's also to for salmon. Salmon is statistically uh, defunct right now. They're statistically extinct. It's really sad, but this will encourage you know uh, the 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 salmon to come back because we've made the passage. So that's the connection we have to make. We have to actually have passage, and if the communities are making money off something um, or, or getting a, a piece of the pie, it gives them more interest to do this. Right now, there's no money in salmon uh, unless uh, unless you're doing the restoration. But if we can include it, all, this is just my opinion. If we include all these species and make our ladders or our fish lifts so they're compatible, we can actually get salmon back. Hopefully. So Atlantic salmon are listed as endangered um, in the Gulf of Maine and the Penobscot River. And so I think, so Jeff, when you mentioned there's no money, it means there's no commercial harvesting for Atlantic salmon currently. Um, but maybe um, Tara and Oliver can sort of, let's talk about salmon for a minute, and then maybe we can get back to the connections to sort of some of these other fish. Yes, I mean, there is a lot of effort going into Atlantic salmon restoration, and we do, um, we don't think of just Atlantic salmon restoration in a vacuum, but we do think about it in terms of the other diadromous fish species as well. So when you're designing a fish ladder or a fish lifter, you know, it's designed for multiple species. Um, so it, it, it's a package deal for us. We don't think about just river herring and salmon. And there's a, there really is an important connection between river herring restoration and salmon restoration. And this, that's, this is the idea of the prey buffering so that when the Atlantic salmon smolts, they're leaving the fresh water in the spring at a similar time when the river herring are starting to move back upstream. And this overlap in space and time um, may provide for you know alternative prey uh, for birds and seals and, and other predators of Atlantic salmon smolts. So that's, 
increasing the survival of the smolts. So that's that's it is a very uh, important concept, and I think NOAA Fisheries is really working hard to investigate that as well. That's exactly right, Oliver. Um, a couple people from the main field station are working in the Penobscot estuary on this prey buffer hypothesis, and so they go out in the estuary and they use um, hydroacoustics, which takes a picture of what's in the water without actually being able to be in the water to see it, and so they can get an estimate of the number of river herring that are in the water at the same time as these small salmon, and so the idea is the salmon can hide within this big school of river herring and hopefully escape predation. So why are, you know, we're still harvesting river herring, but Atlantic salmon are endangered. Why are they doing so much worse? Well, they're doing poorly across their entire range, so it's not just in Maine. Um, so across the North Atlantic and also in Europe, Atlantic salmon are doing poorly. And a lot of it has to do with the marine environment. Something has changed. Um, their food sources have changed or are moving. Um, we're not exactly sure, so that's a big research area for our office. And also, um, historically, you know, these dams were put off and their habitat was cut off. So fewer homes for Atlantic salmon, and that really had a, uh, shrunk the population. And so now they're at really small levels, and so they're at a greater threat to such things as prey from, you know, um, seals and other fish. And so, you know, small events could really wipe out a lot of the fish. So it's both the freshwater and the marine environment that are causing us problems, but it's not just limited to Maine. There is something that we've spoke about Marine Resource Committee. We had a lot of presentations, and some of the things was the smolts are, are surviving and coming out of our rivers, and they spend a lot of time in the in the sea. But what's been really curious is the Icelandic fishing fleet has been way going over their uh, allotted salmon. Uh, they they're, they're allowed 10 metric ton, and they've been landing 20 metric ton. And so some of the gene mapping that we've done, I mean, we know anything, any salmon that comes out of the Narragwagas, we can pinpoint it. We can pinpoint the East Machias. And then the Icelandic fleet, we're finding that we're raising salmon smolt. They're, they're spending their time up in the Icelandic waters. And some of the samples, are these are main fish. They're, the genes all match. And the Icelandic fleet is saying those are Icelandic fish because we caught them in our water. So some of the international stuff that's going on up through Canada and uh, uh, Iceland and Greenland, um, they're, they're catching our salmon smolts. So that's, we don't have, that's why we don't have a big returning population because, one, they went way over the, they've been going way over the allowed metric tons. From 10 metric ton to 20 metric ton is huge. So this was a problem that was brought up to the Marine Resource Committee. This is in the state legislature. This right? is in the state legislature uh, by an international body um, as part of our briefing package. So this was a real eye-opener because we were wondering where the survival rate is. So to bring back Atlantic salmon, we really have to work on an international level to get these guys to either stay in their quotas or reduce their quotas and hold their feet to the fire because that's the same problem that uh, the uh, European unions have been saying is uh, they, they map these fish genetically because we know what they are and they have uh, distinct triggers, 
But they're finding these fish when they do subsamples of these uh, of the Atlantic and the Greenland fleet. So it's a, it's an interesting concept because if we don't get the fish back, we're uh, we we can raise all the salmon smolt we want. Yeah, I think the current estimate is two to two or three uh, main fish per metric ton. Um, you know, but it. We're in such dire straits with the Atlantic salmon. I mean, so it's every fish counts. So where are the places that we can address the mortality of salmon? Well, the marine mortality is a big black box for us. We're just starting to understand some of the issues there, and we may or may not be able to address them. But when there's fish being taken into commercial harvest or we have poor passage at a dam, you know, that, that counts. We can address those issues. So if a fishway is only 80% effective and we're losing 20% of our adults going upstream or we're losing 20% of the smolts going downstream. Those are the areas that we can focus on. And so that's why the commercial harvest is important, fish passage is important, uh, habitat restoration and fresh water is, is important because we're really trying to maximize the survival of Atlantic salmon in the places that we can actually do something. And there is an organization called the um, North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization, NASCO. And so the U.S. is involved in this international treaty where we negotiate quotas for harvest. And so NOAA Fisheries um, attends the yearly NASCO meeting and we do negotiate with Greenland and other countries that are harvesting. So we are working on all fronts, as Oliver said, the marine front, the commercial harvest front, and also freshwater. So all these different fronts. So these fish, so we have marine fish, and then there's freshwater fish. And these 12 species that we're talking about today sort of use both types of habitat. So that seems like a pretty complicated life cycle to me. Why do these fish do this? Why do they make these, you know, incredible thousands of mile migrations? Why, why? Why do they sort of exist, these sea-run fish? I'm going to say you have to ask God. <laughs> <laughs> well, there must be something in it for them, right? So I think that these freshwater areas offer lots of nutrients and good habitat for them to spawn and rear their young in. Um, so they're gaining something from it, but they're also gaining a lot of food from the marine environment. So, you know, that's, that's where they go out and feed and get big, you know, Different life histories for different animals work different ways, and sometimes we're finding river herring will hang out in the estuaries for a year or two years. Um, so it really depends on, you know, where the food are and you know, what the particular fish feels like doing, but there's, there's a strategy that's working for them. So is it special that we have them in Maine? I mean, what's the, why are they such a big deal? We talked a little bit about community benefits for things like river herring. But why are they such a big deal in this state and in the Penobscot? Uh, it's actually uh, interesting. I mean, that's why, why the settlers stopped here instead of kept going west, because they had food in the spring. I mean, this used to be a subsistence fishery until probably around the 1950s. And in some of the other states, you know, just... Uh, habitat denigration, uh, you know, they've lost that because they, they did other things commercially, like New York actually has a, out on Long Island, has a, has a fish run that's actually starting to do well again. It's not doing great, but it's doing better than it was. But North Carolina, they had uh, derby fishing. We've always had one harvester for one river. North Carolina did derby fishing, and then Hornell, uh, 
started raising uh, pigs. And when you have 100,000 head of pigs on a river, and they liked the rivers because they could pump the water, they had water for their, for their hogs, um, it put a lot of nitrates uh, in there, and, uh, and it burns their little eyes. So, that, so between the derby fishing and pollution, um, uh, we have some problems in some of our rivers when, this, when there's overflow in the spring. They have chlorine blooms that are released, and we've actually spotted them in the Kennebec before, and the fish avoid them. So think of all the polluted rivers down around the population centers in America, the, the Potomac River system. Um, would you swim in that? So, so would you guys, with Tara and Oliver, would you sort of agree that mean part of the reason we still have these fish and why we want to keep them does have something to do with the condition of the habitat? I would agree. I think Maine should be really proud that they still have these sea-run fish and intact communities of 12 sea-run fish. Um, I think it's a testament to the clean water and the quality of the habitat. That's not to say there's not more that we could be doing, but I think it's something that Mainers should really be proud of. Uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find another location where you actually had so many uh, different diadromous species. And, you know, in the, in the Kennebec and the Penobscot are great examples. They're pretty unique, uh, you know, worldwide. That it would be unique to have that many. And one of the things is, is you know, when uh, they came out with the Clean Water Act, and we started, I, 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 I'm old enough to remember the rivers were the color that the mills were dying that day. So as our economy's changed and the woolen mills and the cotton mills have left, um, and our rivers have become clean, um, because they were in dire straits in the 70s and the, and, the, and the 80s. So it's taken a long time. We say they're doing great now. They're doing really well compared to everybody else. But we were at the verge of extinction or a crash, and that's, I think Terry can speak why there was a potential ESA listing and how they looked at it for range and genetics. I mean, it was a complicated process. I'm not going to say I understand the genetics and what they were looking at, but when I look at habitat, because I go down to a lot of the meetings in D.C., I wouldn't swim in their water, but when I was a kid, I wouldn't swim in Maine waters either. So we've done a great job, and that's part of the, the dam removal is kind of the icing on the cake, or uh, ladders, and, and, and that's why this work's so important, because we can bring back these fisheries, but it takes a long time. We've been rebuilding this fishery since the late 70s. It isn't something that happened overnight. So Tara, do you want to say something? So we know that salmon have been designated as endangered, but there's a few other listed species, as well as um, species that were proposed for listing. Yes, um, in the Penobscot we have Atlantic salmon that are listed as endangered and short-nosed sturgeon are listed as endangered. There are Atlantic sturgeon also, which are listed as threatened um, in the Penobscot. And also we've been petitioned in the past to look at alewives and blueback herring coastwide, so from South Carolina throughout their range to Canada. Um, we did come out with a, a recommendation that um, they shouldn't be listed as threatened or endangered, but we're going to um, look at that status review again in five years. So right now we have a proactive conservation plan where we've gathered a lot of the scientists and managers from South Carolina to Maine and into Canada um, to get together to do something proactive before they get to that endangered level. So what we'd like to do is prevent alewives and blueback herring from being listed as endangered. And 
If we can do that through restoration coastwide, we'd love to. Oh, and also um, eels are currently being looked at. The Fish and Wildlife Service is um, reviewing a petition right now, and I think they'll be coming out with a recommendation soon about whether or not eels should be listed as threatened or endangered. Well, there's a lot of great things that's been happening on the eel front. I mean, we've, we've actually seen in the elver industry in Maine, which has been a hot topic, you know, um, that there seems to be uh, juvenile recruitment seems to actually be increasing. Is that because we've put all this effort into habitat? Because, again, these are all in the river at the same time, and they all need habitat. They need to get into our, because uh, eels live in our lakes for nine to 12 years, depending on the warmth of, warmth of the lake. So they're the exact opposite of the other species we've been talking about. But it's really interesting to see that a lot of the species that are having troubles in other states, we're seeing good recruitment numbers. And it's taken a lot of work and time, and there's been a lot of great people working on this uh, sub subject for many years. Um, so I just want to make sure that we don't um, deny some of the other species their little moment um, on the air here today. So I just wonder, Oliver, I know you have some experience with sturgeon. In the department, uh, Gail Whipplehauser, Dr. Gail Whipplehauser works with our sturgeon, and we do some tracking programs in the Kennebec, and, um, and we've done some work on the on the Penobscot. But uh, I think sturgeon right now is, uh, you know, we're just kind of monitoring. We don't have any really active programs going with sturgeon. So um, other species that we're currently working with, the rainbow smelt, um, we're focused on the Penobscot right now, trying to uh, maybe understand more about those population dynamics and which streams have runs and which streams don't. Um, we're also doing work with um, striped bass and uh, some tracking studies there. Uh, there's been an effort to try and uh, document where there may be some overwinter populations in the in the Kennebec. There's some historic data that suggests that. Um, recent data doesn't really support that, so maybe uh, those populations um, have been extirpated. I think on some of the conversation about smelt, we've, we've, uh, there's been... Uh, so what's a smelt opinion? Well, they're really different from some of the other. They're a yummy little fish. <laughs> no, um, they're they're about eight nine inches long. Um, you'll see in the Kennebec, you'll uh, you'll see uh, sm uh, smelt camps. Um, the, a lot yes, of I've been to the smelt camps on the Kennebec River. Well, I I think a lot of people that have it, and they're on the Eastern River. But one thing that we haven't talked about when we talk about smelts in particular, or some of these other stocks, is an invasive problem. And I, I, I speak for the Kennebec because that's the system I'm on. But we have a huge catfish problem and carp problem. So the carp are sucking up all the eggs. So this is one Wait, of the... Can you repeat? So there's carp and catfish in the ca Carp and catfish. And we catch a lot of them. Um, so this is an invasive species. And what we find is the carp follow the alewives, the smelt. And I'm sure they do... Uh, uh, with other with other other species the other species and they suck up the eggs so we'll see uh, and so don't the catfish so we have an invasive species problem in Maine and we haven't really addressed it um, right now there's a couple of us trying to work on how to build catfish traps so that we can uh, 
we can help limit the population. These cold winters help a little bit, but they winter, they winter all year round in our rivers. So when we talk about what's going on with smelt and the other 11 diagenous species, we have to bring in the invasive problem too, or at least in the, the southern part of the state. Um, I don't know about so many invasives in the Penobscot. Well, I, I think with smelt, it's really important to remember that to, and to recognize that we, we're seeing declines in the smelt populations in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, southern Maine, and it, those declines are definitely moving northward. So, um, you know, while invasives may be contributing to that, um, it's, you know, I think of invasives as being a more of a localized issue, but this, we're seeing declines across the range of, the entire range of rainbow smelt. So, so similar that's to salmon. Similar to salmon. There's a bigger driver here, and so, um, and it could be related to water temperature, um, you know, food source, habitat loss as well. I mean, we might have, um, be in a situation where we have so few rainbow smelt that, you know, now that, um, we've seen some other change in their environment, it's really uh, putting, them, putting them in a, in a very poor position. So it's a similar idea with the habitat restorations, trying to maintain the runs and protect them uh, where we can. So um, are there other, so we mentioned a couple challenges, are there other challenges that these fish and bringing them back are facing? And what can people do, towns, communities, individuals, is there anything that people can do? Help? That's a great question and um, one project that I've been involved in is called Stream Smart and it's run by Maine Audubon and what they do is they go out to communities and they teach them how to put in um, fish friendly culverts. Um, so basically like they, a culvert. so a culvert is anytime a road crosses a stream you usually have some kind of structure that passes the water either a bridge or a culvert and they're usually metal pipes. And so what they're doing is they're teaching um, communities how to put in these open bottom arches so you have natural rock bottoms that the fish and other aquatic organisms can swim through. And that's opening up habitat. So we can also take out dams, but we can also open up habitat by putting in these fr fish-friendly culverts. And it actually also helps the towns because they're sized a little bit bigger. And so they don't wash out as often if we have major flooding. That's a good point there, and uh, hanging culverts are a tremendous detriment What's to... What's a hanging culvert? Oh, those are the best because they don't pass anything. So a hanging culvert is something that you might see the water flow coming out of them, and it's uh, maybe to a foot to two or three feet. Well, fish can't jump. They can swim up through the current. Salmon can jump, but they... Then, so the water drips down, especially, uh, you know, after the, the big ice has gone out. So they can't jump. So that's what they call a hanging culvert. And there's actually uh, DOT has been working on programs because D uh, the state of Maine Department of Transportation owns a lot of these culverts. And so when they're replacing them, they're requiring them to put in fish-friendly culverts. It's just having the people realizing that that that, that piece of passage, because especially for the rainbow smelt, um, they have to get into those streams. and the, they have a culvert right there that they can't get up and the water's still brackish, they're not going to spawn, they're not going to do well. So it, it's just little things like that. And if you see a barrier, you know, I mean, if you're involved in your community, um, call a harvester. Uh, talk to you, I mean, there's, there's municipal fish worms. And in the towns that don't have them, 
you, the most towns have a conservation committee now. Chat them up. Uh, ask what you can do for fish passage. Um, sometimes it's just uh, mentioning it, and people go, "Oh yeah, sounds we can do it." It sounds expensive. Are there are there other either resources for you know to help towns with these situations or um, sort of other options? Well, with hanging culverts, it could be as simple. You're not going to replace a two-year-old culvert that's uh, twenty thousand dollars. You're not going to do it, but you can take and uh, maybe rock pile in so that there's a so the water goes gradually like it would a stream bed that that might not be the that might only be 40 percent effective but it's 40 percent you don't have um some towns are when they actually when they're now in a lot of the river systems when they when they do a permit for a new for a new culvert they have to put them in fish friendly uh, that's something the army corps of engineer has been going after for salmon habitat, it is expensive at that point. But you can do little things, you know. If you know it's the sp it's the spring of the year now, go, you know, maybe just um, put in a little plywood chute, just something to help the fish climb. I mean, it's a lot easier than them trying to jump jump s straight up. How pervasive is this this problem of sort of blocks? There's over two hundred eighty thousand hanging culverts in Maine. And if you're curious if there are hanging culverts or block culverts in your community, there's a website called the Mainstream Habitat Viewer. You can go on and you can look at culverts and they have them color coded, um, red, yellow, and green. And you can look at pictures of your culvert in your town, um, maybe bring it up to your roads committee um, and look at it that way and see if there's a run of smelt or alewives down below. And, and if you're walking, you know, a lot of people, it's a great time to be walking outside right now. I mean, if you're walking over... Uh, black flies aren't too bad. Oh, come on now. After this winter, who cares about black flies? But just take a look over the side. Uh, you know, if you're walking across a road, a road crossing, and, and we're not talking, um, you know, 10 or 12-inch culvert. We're talking some of the bigger road culverts, you know, where you see a stream. And, you know, just take a look. And if you notice something... You know, uh, feel free to, I'm sure Taylor or uh, Oliver or myself will take the call, and if it's on the map, we can point it out and uh, maybe help. Um, any sort of final, we're getting close to the end of our hour here, so if there's things that we haven't covered, um, you might want to think about places where people can go. So we heard about the Stream Habitat Viewer, or if you're wondering where there might be um, blocked fish passage in your community there's that resource and um, just search for that or where does it live um, it's a main website so you can search for the mainstream habitat viewer and it should be the first thing that pops up it's an online website where you can surf around and look at pictures of culverts it's a great resource i i use it almost daily um, in my work so uh, you can go you can there's a drop-down menu. You can select your town and see the barriers that are around there. You can click on uh, habitat for a uh, link for Atlantic salmon, uh, rainbow smelt, river herring, and see if there's a current run or historic run. It's a really useful tool. You can also go to the DOT website and see what their work schedule, what they plan to replace. So if you go to this uh, habitat viewer and then go to the DOT website, you can see if they're on the list to be replaced and what the schedule is. Um, like I said, they're not going to replace a five-year-old culvert, and this program's fairly new, but uh, the, the, uh, there is a big list. Um, Weber Pond, 
in Bremen just got new culverts. It's actually a, a great success story. Um, if you want to check with Dave Wilkinson uh, in, Br in Bremen, he, he did a great thing there. But um, you know, go go see your fish runs. Go to Dan Muscata. So to yeah, where are some places where people can actually see these fish? I would go to Dan Muscata. It's a great walk through the woods with the man-made resting pools. Great stonework. Uh, tremendous effort by that town. But you can go to uh, the Union River. Uh, right in town, uh, Ellsworth, at the dam, watch the fish lift, uh, go to Benton Falls, um, those are good communities. Uh, the Nequasic, uh Alwife Run, great smoked Alwives too, from the, the Lily family, um, and it's a great uh, historical uh, run that's been there since uh, 1790. So, um, the logging museum as well in Bradley. You mentioned that run on yeah. Rockman Stream, so that that's a recent uh, renovation project, and fish are running there as well. Yeah, and if you're down in Acadia, you can go to the Sumsville Fishway. It's a really beautiful fishway. If you're down in the park, you can see alewives, and I've seen eels there at the top of the fishway. So as the alewives swim up, an eel would grab an alewife and go down to its hole. It's really amazing. So I would encourage people to just get out and see these fish runs while they're here in the spring. Well, lots to see this spring. Um, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about sea run fish in Maine's rivers. And I'd really like to thank our guests for their time and good work on behalf of the state of Maine. Um, thanks so much for joining me in the studio, Oliver Cox of the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Jeffrey Pierce of the Alewife Harvesters of Maine, Tara Trinko Lake of the National Marine Fisheries Service, um, and to Natalie Springle, who's your regular host for this show. Of course, all the listeners who spent time with us today. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. On the second Friday of the, each month, you can still catch Talk of the Towns, the long-standing WERU public affairs program that inspired Coastal Conversations. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Katherine Schmidt, your host today of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.